Hello and welcome to Innovation Matters, the sustainable innovation podcast brought to you by Lux Research. I'm your host, Anthony Schiavo, and I'm joined here by Mike Holman and Kartik Sobramian. And before we get started, I'm going to encourage you to like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you appreciate the hard work that we are doing. And I think it's especially important because we have done some particularly hard work this week. Mike, our intrepid uh, <laughs> intrepid explorer, <laughs> intrepid uh, on-the-ground reporter, live New York correspondent, Mike Holman, has, uh, has a <laughs> breaking development for us. Before that, though, um, Kartik, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. Uh, you know, busy week. The Super Bowl was this Sunday. You had, you know, the Champions League is back. Formula One cars being launched. You know, uh, the whole <laughs> shebang, you know, just just busy, busy, busy. Who, who are you pulling for in the Super Bowl, Kartik? I know you're not a big American football guy necessarily, right? But Yeah, I wanted the Niners to win because my friends told me, you know, they were just the, uh, you know, the underdogs. Yeah, I, I wanted to see what the fallout would have been with Taylor Swift and all that. But, you know, that didn't happen. So it is what it is. Yeah. We're going to be analyzing the uh, Taylor Swift CIA connections in the, the second. Uh, <laughs> that'll be our second news item. That's 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 <laughs> Anthony's other podcast. Yeah, that's my that's my other podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, Mike, who who are you who are you pulling for? I I was kind of pulling for the Niners too. I'm just uh, a little little tired of Kansas City. They've been kind of whiny this year, <laughs> but uh, anyway, it's a good game. So. I didn't have a strong rooting interest, so it was. It was I can't say it wasn't entertaining. I do want to use this platform to say that they did my boy Usher dirty uh, in a couple <laughs> different ways. Uh, I thought the audio, you know, when he was using the lavalier mic during the halftime show, it wasn't that good. Like the audio quality just wasn't there. You could really tell when he had the handheld mic; it was like a lot better. It's like my mm. man can sing. Like, please do not get in his way. And then I gotta say, when he took off his shirt, I was hooting and hollering. And then he immediately ran backstage and put on the dorkiest outfit I've ever seen in a Super Bowl. And I was like, just let him be. Let him be shirtless. Let him do his thing. Give him a mic that works and let him be shirtless. Like, that's a show. For real. So I, I just, you know, it's important. I have feel like I have an obligation to use my platform for good. And, uh, you know, in that context, I'm, I'm putting this message out there. Like, let him be free for real. God. All right, enough beating around the bush. Mike, you experienced the future uh, on Monday. Is this about me meeting Jacques Torres? This is about me meeting Jacques <laughs> Very impressive for the, the nailed it aficionados. Been a big week, yeah. yeah. I went to... <laughs> yeah, you're really moving from strength to strength this week. Yeah. <laughs> I did, did did meet him. He was gagged for, I guess, Valentine's Day. He was at his shop. and so. But um, no, I also got to try the uh, the Apple Vision Pro which is, um, you know, pretty hyped up. And I, you know, in some ways, justly so it was, it's a, it's a really impressive, uh, experience. You know, I got to do just the standard demo, right. I, and it's, it's, it's pretty limited. It's like 15, 20 minutes. You're just sitting on a, on a, on a chair in the store. It, it's much more, um, you know, so it, it, the very impressive stuff, it's much more focused on the kind of immersive, you know, basically VR type of, of stuff as opposed to the interactive mixed reality, augmented reality type of things you that it can also do. So can you take a step back? Because I've actually re- remained relatively pure on the Apple Vision Pro stuff. I actually don't know that much, which has not stopped me from formulating a ton of opinions. Um, but <laughs> Why would it? That's simply not part of my process. Um, what, like, is it physically? You have a headset. Is it AR or is it VR? This is something I've actually, I, I was a little confused about when I first saw it. And then what else? There's like a, uh, I know there's like a wire. What is it? Is that just like a battery pack? Like physically, what are we talking about here? Yeah. So physically it's, it's a it, much like a VR headset, essentially this big thing that goes over your face. It has this thick uh, headband uh, behind it, which is you know, actually fairly comfortable, but it is, it is noticeably heavy and there is a cord going from it to a, um, a battery pack that you can you know basically put in your pocket. The, uh, the Apple store technician was holding on to the battery pack the whole time, I guess. So I didn't run off with it or something. I don't know. But anyway, you can put the battery back in your pocket and walk around, which they did decidedly did not let me do, but you can find lots of the YouTube videos of people walking around with it, but the way it works and this, yeah, this wasn't clear to, to me when I, you know, when it was kind of first announced back in the, back in the fall, you do not see through the thing. 
right? And oh, I think really? it's one of the clever design choices. Like it sort of looks, it looks like ski goggles, right? So it, it kind of looks like the sort of thing that you, you might be able to see through, but you cannot yeah. in fact see through it. But what it's doing is you're, you're only looking at a screen. But what it's doing yeah. is it has cameras on the outside that are capturing the image of what's in front of it. And it is displaying that image on the front, uh, you know, on the screen in front of your eyes so that it looks like, you know, the experience. And it's the that uh, pass through, they call it, is pretty good. I mean, it's it's better than really? I thought it would be. Um, it's it's not it's definitely not perfect. You can if you if you. If you try to notice, you can definitely notice that you're see that you're 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 looking at a a screen with an image of the real world on it, not not actually at at the real world. But it's it's good enough that I think it would be if you were wearing it and walking around doing stuff, interacting with it would be very easy to forget. I mean, I I as you guys have seen, I, I and as people can see on my LinkedIn, I pulled out my phone to take a selfie of myself in it, and I you know I could see my phone and pick it up and see what was on the screen and navigate to the camera app and right all while still wearing the goggles with with the pass through i have also seen uh, youtube reviewers uh, play ping pong and try to catch objects while wearing it so and, and yeah i think the latency is very low so it's, it's like really really good is what i've heard yeah and i actually didn't realize until um zuck post posted his his uh his clapback video uh yesterday yeah, we which we can, we can talk about, about that. <laughs> we have to talk about the zuck the, the, the oculus has passed through also which is um I, I mean from what i've heard not as good as the the apple vision pros like i think somebody actually said in one of the reviews like like oh you 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 could play ping pong with the the apple vision pro on but if you tried to do that with the Oculus, it's it's enough of a lag that it'd be a, a distinct disadvantage. I'm actually curious to hear Anthony's thoughts on this one because Apple doesn't call this an AR or a VR headset, if I'm not mistaken. They call this a spatial computer or something like that. that that's 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 fake. I mean, it is it is VR. I thought it was AR. So first of all, I thought it was AR. I thought you could look through the thing and it was projecting images mm -hmm. on the real world. Over um, top of it now, no. Over no. top of it which I guess from a technical perspective, I definitely see like one of the big issues with AR is like changing light conditions is like impossible to, to deal with. So if you can just like, <laughs> you know, mediate that issue just by, okay, we're going to see the world and we're going to just recreate it and project on top of it. Handle that all on the computer. Yeah. You handle that all on the computer. You do it in the computer. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. I guess that's kind of terrible though or like it's 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 a lot less technically impressive than i thought it was because i thought it was that i guess my question be, before i get into my like philosophical thoughts about this which are substantive like <laughs> what do you what would you use this for right especially because you can't like it seems like the the two things is like it's really big right it seems like a really big screen right um, so if you're on a plane or something, you know, you can you can watch a movie on a really big screen, what appears to be an enormous screen. You can't use this for gaming, but like the Oculus, um, you can, right? And like, that seems, I don't know, reasonable-ish to me, although I don't know if I would want to like sit with something on my face for a couple hours, let alone like if you're eight hours, you know, if you're like a serious, if you're a person who's going <laughs> to spend like three grand on a gaming equipment, like you're going to probably use it for like you know a full day or like use it for like an extended period of time and it just seems you know kind of antithetical to that so I, I guess i'm just curious like what is it good for i mean i think the experience of watching a movie or watching sports in it is um could be very good i think in general the ability to have sort of multiple screens up you know and and windows and different paces and things like I could imagine, you know, if I, you know, I was on a plane, right. I, I could be working and I guess, you know, you can mirror your Mac desktop to it, basic or windows to it. So I could, you know, I could effectively have, you know, two or three or four monitors for work and also have like another window up here, which is streaming the basketball game or, you know, uh, whatever and or having it Twitter up there and stuff. So you can kind of like look around. I think, I think from a productivity standpoint, it would actually be, be kind of handy for that for that sort of thing and um you know i would use it at home probably to you know like i said watch a basketball game or football game and you know i i'm you always like when i'm watching sports i've got the you know looking at the the tv and checking 
you know, the running commentary on Twitter or uh, looking at, you know, the, the stats in a browser window or something. And so, you know, kind of having those different screens on the field of view, like that would be, a, it would be a cool way to watch, to watch sports. If I may add just with the sports thing as well. I mean, if you look at Formula One, you have these onboard cameras and things like that, right? So if you integrate that with, let's say a VR headset, then you could literally be sitting as the driver and viewing what they are seeing and what they're doing. Uh, you can get different angles, let's say for a basketball game, you could have a court side seat, see what's going on with tactics, things like that. Uh, I also heard a few, uh, um, you know, football clubs, soccer clubs wanting to um, have cameras and stuff on their shirt so that uh, you know if, if someone wants to view or, or be a player who is actually running you can actually do that with your VR headset so I think there's some really cool immersive experiences there but I guess Mike uh, because the battery is so small I mean you can only use it for like a couple of hours right so it's it's really not useful like let's say for a long plane journey across the Atlantic for example you know it's just gonna die. Yeah, you can buy like battery pack extenders and stuff and and apparently get to get to a reasonable number of hours of uh uh of of runtime there, but uh yeah, I mean I do think that's the other thing is the immersive stuff. I mean there's a limited amount of content for that right now, but you know, they showed some of these videos and like, you know, you're sitting there and like these rhinos are walking up to you and it looks, you know, or or there's a, you know, shark swimming past or whatever. It looks very very real and and that's that's a cool experience i think if people started making um more stuff like that or like you said filming sports uh or other you know movies or whatever with with that type of the, the type of cameras that allow them to do that kind of it's not 360 it's like 180 or whatever degree view yeah that that would be cool and i could see people kind of getting into that i don't think i would personally you know, I would watch something like that every now and again. That wouldn't be a main sort of use case of it for for me, probably. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing as, as you've seen with a lot of these new consumer electronics categories, right? Whether it's been VR headsets or smartwatches, right? The attrition rate's pretty high, right? People buy it and then like six months later, it turns it's just sitting in a drawer. And I, I kind of feel like, at least for me, if I if I if money weren't an object and I decided to drop the three and a half grand or or whatever on this, I feel like I would. Uh, pretty quickly, there's a good chance I would would find myself not using it very much at all after kind of the initial uh, excitement wore off. We have this application of using it for these immersive experiences. I guess the thing when you think back about like the iPhone, right, which is sort of the the er disruptive tech thing, right? It did a lot of stuff that was already an application, right? It was already a use case. It took a bunch of them and combined it together, right? It was a phone. It was an email. It was, you could watch videos on it. You could watch, you could read the news on it. It took all these sort of discrete devices. And you've seen the photo of like, oh, here's all the things that an iPhone does. And it's like this pile of stuff. You know, It's like a big fax machine, right? And it's like, okay, we've combined all these things into this one device. And um, and then there was also like new stuff. Like, you know, social media is also kind of a, uh, you know, a very much a product of having access to this type of thing. So I guess the question is, it doesn't seem like it is a device that combines a lot of stuff in the way that the iPhone does. It doesn't seem like it is... Maybe it does that, you know, maybe there's a thing like, oh, it, 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 you can do your emails, you can do all this other stuff on it. Like you can do spatial, like it's a computer, right? On some level, I guess that's one thing I'm not sure about. Is it a comp- like I've seen people plug it into their Mac, right? Like how much of a computer is it? Do you need a computer with you? Can it run Microsoft Excel? <laughs> can it run Microsoft Excel by itself, right? Or do I have to, and this is, I guess, the same thing with, because the Oculus is like a pure headset. I mean, I think that's just, it's just the app model, right? It, it can't do a lot of that stuff right now because not that many apps have been written for it. But I think like if you wanted to, if Microsoft decided to create an Excel app for it, which they, they probably will, then then you, you will be able to, yeah. Well, like I would need to plug it into my, my computer, right? To do that, basically. Uh, I don't think you physically plug it into a Mac, so what it would do is, I think, when you wear it and you, it detects your Mac is with you, it mirrors the Mac onto the, you know, the space in front of you. And then you can also have other tabs from your VR headset that's floating around. So you can multitask through your Mac. But the problem is, uh, this is something reviewers have explained as well, that it does not show the keyboard of the Mac. So you, it covers that space if you're immersive enough, so you really can't see the keys. And then it becomes really tough to type something through your Mac while viewing something in front of you. 
but it's not like directly plugged in. So you can, it, it does have its own processor and stuff, of course. I, I think that's the, the, I mean, the thing that a lot of people have said, the question about this and, and that at least a certain number of reviewers have said this is like, it's like, oh, is this now the next cell phone, right? The next universal device. And so I've been thinking about that. I, I don't think it is. I think, I don't think there is going to be another universal device in the way that, I mean, the cell phone is like, like short of the human voice. Like it's probably the most widely adopted communication, you know, technology, you know, our species has ever, uh, has ever used, has ever had. Um, and I think that's kind of the peak, right? And because you see this a lot with, with technologies and, and, and these markets, right? There tends to be like in media, right? There's a, there's a consolidation phase, right? In the world of media from like early 20th century, there was like a hundred newspapers in every city, right? And a bunch of radio stations and, and, you know, kind of came in later. And eventually as the technology progressed, things consolidated. And by sort of middle of the century, there was like one or two essentially major newspapers in every city. And basically everybody got their news from the same three uh, networks. And then that, that was kind of the peak and then it, it of of consolidation and and sort of uniformity and then it it became much more distributed and much more diverse after that first with like you know like cable tv and then obviously with the advent of the internet and and ultimately social media news and information sources got got way more distributed and and fragmented again and I think, and, and you can make similar observations about like energy, right? Things used to be a fire in your house. And then eventually we had, you know, large centralized uh, power plants and and now energy is getting more distributed thanks to wind and solar and, and all of that. So I think it's, it's kind of a pattern you see in a number of areas. And I think in consumer electronics, basically like the cell phone is the peak and then there's going to be a lot of other devices and platforms that come in. But I don't. I don't think, at least, you know, in our you know next generation or so here, there's going to be another alternate platform that's going to be as universal um, as the cell phone has has been. And you know, so is the Apple Vision Pro and and sort of AR VR in general like one of the new things? Uh, I do think it it probably is in 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 some way, but it's not going to be like the new thing. Well, let me now make my philosophical point, which is that <laughs> I see a lot of tech, right? You look at tech and it mediates our lived experience, right? You have the phone and we experience a lot of reality now through our phones, right? And that's been good in some ways. Um, like you said, it's the most widely adopted communications like network, right? And we have this podcast and we have, you know, other, you know, ultimately like we have FaceTime, we have all this stuff, right? We can, we can, we can connect to each other, but like mediating our reality through our phones has also come with like a lot of drawbacks, right? It's been, it's been bad, but all the good and, and bad stuff has come through this ability to like mediate reality. And like this AR VR vision pro experience to me is like, that just sort of intensified or taken to the next level it's like okay we're going to completely mediate your experience of reality through this technological device right and i think it kind of shows that tech is a little bit out of ideas the thing that was revolutionary about the iphone and about you know so for the sort of the internet age in general and cell phones in particular is the extent to which they mediated experiences that were not being mediated before like if you wanted to see people fight previously you had to go down to a pub and um now <laughs> you can just watch that on your phone right and i guess the point i'm making is like this desire or this intensification of this existing capability or property to me says that they're yeah they're out of ideas they're not able to think of a new way or a new thing a new mode of being or interacting with society. And so they are just taking the thing that they're already doing and seeking to intensify it to like the maximum possible degree. So to me, this is actually like bearish, like the tech industry is kind of dead or like there are useful applications for this. Don't get me wrong. And like, 
I'm sure there's some cool stuff. You know, AR VR gaming seems sweet if you're into that. Like, there it does seem like okay, there are things that could be interesting here, but it also speaks to me to kind of a lack of ideas or a lack of, I don't know, philosophical enrichment within the tech industry. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if 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 I'm right about uh, you know the sort of being the peak of like universality and uh, the cell phone being the peak of of universality and uh, and consolidation, then it sort of makes sense, right? That that's like where mm-hmm. there isn't really a great place to 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 go from there. Yeah, but the question I had for Anthony was, uh, you know, with with Apple in general, right? Like they usually tend to do things the Apple way. Like even for example, with, with with their phone, right? I mean, there are so many features that have come in the latest versions of the iPhone that were already existent in the Android side of things. But you know, they do it with their, you know, with that magical Apple Touch or so they like to call it. You know, the best version of what it could be. Do you see mm-hmm. the timing of the release of this VR headset? Because we already have the Oculus and, and, and the other VR headsets that have already come out. Does that or has that affected your thought process when it comes to, you know, being a bit bearish on this? Not really. And like, maybe we can talk about the Zuck video. But like, there's a lot of like, it's not about the timing or the companies themselves necessarily. Although it's it's just more about this is, what what does the device do? Like, what is the... Not, and not just what does the device do, but what does the device claim to do or want to do, right? What if just assume everything works exactly the way they say it will work? And, you know, it's going to be spatial computing. It's not AR VR, right? It's like, okay, well, what is that vision of the future, right? And how rich, how meaningful, you know, what is that vision of the future saying about what the future will look like? And it's that vision of the future they have is just an intensification of the the vision of the future you know the vision we already have right um and that's why i wasn't that impressed by like the the zuck i mean the zuck video was like fun like it's it's fun to have like zuck you know dunk on tim apple enemy of this podcast (laughs) so yeah for people who haven't seen it mark zuckerberg released this video uh yesterday or when we're recording this february recent on the 14th i guess you know saying why he thinks the oculus is actually still better than the the vision pro even though it costs you know, $3,000 less. Yeah. I mean, and one of the things that it, it does is cost $3,000 less. That's something he calls out in the video. The thing that stood out to me most about the video was him saying like, Oh, like we're an open platform and like open platforms should win. And like, there's, there's two things he says in there. One is that he feels close platforms have won the phone battle, which was interesting because I guess I would consider Android an open platform. I would consider Android as having won the the phone battle and I would consider it being an open platform. But the other thing he says is that Facebook is trying to build an open platform. And it's just like, I just don't believe that. Like, I think every tech company ultimately wants to build a closed platform and they are sometimes end up having to build an open platform. So yeah. What did you think about the Zuck video? There's, uh, there's degrees of open, but I, I do think that's the, that is in a way the key point, right? Cause I, I, you know, you, you called out, I think, correctly that there isn't this sort of clear grand especially not a real novel vision of the future that the apple vision pro uh represents ironically um but i think you know a lot of the things that the that the iphone and and the you know the smartphone in general ended up uh ended up representing weren't a clear part of the vision at the start of that either. And the fact that people were able to, you know, kind of build apps on top of it and come up with ideas. So something like, you know, Uber and Lyft and the way that it disrupted the, the, the taxi industry wasn't like a part of the vision for the iPhone. That was something that kind of emerged from people's ability to uh, kind of create apps on top of it. And maybe, maybe people will create stuff on the, the vision pro uh, apps or use cases for it that that do surprise us, and I think there will be some interesting ones in terms of you know I mean relevant to to kind of the core stuff that that Lux usually covers. I think there will be some interesting enterprise. I mean, yeah, there already are enterprise uses for for AR in terms of you know assisting remote maintenance and and training and things like that. And I'm sure there'll be some very good versions of that that are built on the on on the Apple Vision Pro. Um, but yeah, it will, we'll 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 see what what kind of gets built on it, and I think there'll be probably some things that surprise us. I don't really foresee anything 
that, uh, you know, like I said, will make it uh, a really universal device in the way that the, you know, something next thing that supplants the cell phone. I, I still don't see that happening, but it's kind of what the impact is, is going to come down to, to seeing what, uh, what kind of interesting and, and maybe unexpected use cases people come up with for it. I would say that it, it's very interesting to look at uh, any kind of AR or VR headset from an education standpoint, as well, uh, especially in, you know, sectors like the medical sector, where, you know, doctors could actually perform a surgery on an artificial, you know, uh, a body floating in the air without having to worry about killing that person, um, allowing them to train and become better doctors. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm sure that AR and VR has a lot of applications that are actually useful. But would I want to sit for two hours at home and, and do something, uh, you know, for my pastime with that? I'm, I'm not sure I, I would, you know, find that idea. All right, we are back, everyone, and talking to Isaac Brown of Landmark Ventures. Isaac, welcome to the Innovation Matters podcast. Hey, Mike, how you doing? It's good to be here. So, uh, what did we? I mean, to kick things off, why don't we just tell us uh, what what Landmark Ventures is and and what you do there? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> um, Landmark uh, does three different things. We've got an investment banking business that does a lot of work helping enterprise technology startups with financing and M and A. We have a pretty big events and conferences business, hosting event, events, you know, generally technology events all over the world. And then the team that I'm on where I spend most of my time is focused on helping startups with go-to-market and business development. Uh, so those are the three teams. Um, my team specifically is mostly focused on the industrial technology space. So that's really the use of technology to improve performance and productivity and efficiency within industrial operations. Yeah. And in industrial operations, right? That's kind of one of the uh, you know, industrials, manufacturing, things like that. That's one of the areas that's been pretty hot in in general in the US right a lot of the investments in the inflation reduction act and incentives and things there have led to a lot more construction and investment in 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 manufacturing uh, domestically here is that the sort of thing like you've been you've been seeing reflected in the you know the impact on this on this space and the the companies you're working with a little bit. The area that we've seen it have the most impact is certainly automotive manufacturing companies that are either building new electric vehicle plants or transitioning old plants to be electric vehicle plants. They're spending a lot of money on new technologies. Um, so that's probably where we've seen it have a, a bigger impact. Otherwise, all of our startups that we work with and that we help with sales and marketing, they seem to think it's a big deal, uh, but we haven't actually seen it materialize into sales yet. So it's kind of this idea that we need to be going after the semiconductor companies and the electronics companies and all these companies that the government's pumping money into. I would say so far, it's still more of an idea than something that's materializing into money. So so what is it that you are seeing that's uh, kind of the, the big trends or drivers in, the, in, uh, in that kind of industrial technology space right now? Yeah, I, I think there's a few trends and they're separate from any investments the government is making in American manufacturing. Um, pro probably the two biggest ones are related to sustainability and related to the industrial workforce. Um, the workforce thing was already like a looming existential crisis in American manufacturing, uh, in, in global manufacturing. It's not a problem that's unique to America, but just this idea that the skilled people in manufacturing plants are retiring and nobody is replacing them. Uh, and it's a real problem and we don't have good solutions for it. And it was happening before the pandemic and then the pandemic made it worse. And then after the pandemic, even more people retired. So it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And, you know, if you look at the research that manufacturing organizations do on how are manufacturers solving this problem, it's very funny. The most popular approach to solving this problem is you just get people to not retire, right? <laughs> like you try to try to extend the careers of the skilled older employees who are good at fixing things when they break or doing changeovers or you know whatever it might be. Um, but we see a lot of technology coming up that helps with that. It's not just replacing humans with machines. Technology for capturing skills and transferring it to people, to optimizing training, to improving safety. So that's a big category for us. Um, you know, some of it is part of this kind of connected worker category, but that means different things depending on who you talk to. 
Um, but yeah, that's that's a really big space is just any, I would call it like workforce enablement technology. Um, and then the other big demand that we're seeing is around sustainability within manufacturing. And that's obviously a buzzword that means a million things to a million different people. Um, I, you know, there's different ways manufacturing companies define sustainability or their ESG goals. One of the major areas that we're seeing a lot of innovation is just around how do you use less energy and less fuel and how do you emit less carbon? So those are areas that I think are very impactful. The energy one specifically, like whether you think sustainability is good or bad or whether you believe in climate change or not, if your chemical plant spends 5% less on the energy bill, it, do, it doesn't matter what your philosophical beliefs are. That's a major ROI generator. So that's something that everyone can get behind regardless of what your personal beliefs are. So we're seeing a lot of activity around around that because it's a hard ROI driver. And it's, a, you know, from a marketing perspective, obviously sustainability is a good thing for big companies to be doing. So Isaac, I'm interested in the first point you made about the the workforce because in the Northeast and in a lot of regions, you have these regional development efforts. You know, Massachusetts has a lot of state level efforts. There's this whole, a lot of the government funded innovation activity is coming with a requirement to buy American or to build American. And, you know, we're doing this event, <clears throat> we're doing this event in a few weeks or a few months. That's kind of focused on the Northeast as a regional hub. But part of the problem is that, you know, the workers are just, like you said, they're getting older. Is there an opportunity or how much do you think any of this regional stuff can can move the needle? Or is it really an issue that's, you know, kind of more macro and, and defying, I guess, the ability of anyone to, or any one region? It's, it's a good question. Um, you know, I think it's more of a, a bigger picture generational problem than it is something that you know, state or government coalitions can help solve, right? I mean, they can help, they can make a dent in it, but you just have people with different interests going to college, studying different things, not excited about working in a factory. Um, you have, I guess one of the other trends is that increasingly people are living in cities and there aren't as many factories in or near cities. So you actually have the population leaving the areas where there are factories that they could work in. Um, obviously you could pay people more or you could incentivize them uh, to go into those industries and go into those trades. And maybe we'll get to that point. Maybe we're already doing that. I don't know. Um, I, I think, again, I think you can put a dent in it, but I think it's a bigger picture problem. And I think technology plays a huge role in helping solve it. It doesn't completely solve it. But like, you know, a lot of things are going to go into solving it. And I think technology probably has a, the biggest role of anything. Do you think it's sectoral? Like, that is, do you think young folks are interested in doing sustainable technologies and they don't want to go work at like ExxonMobil or, you know, whatever big oil that's, uh, you know, killing the planet type of like that type of motivation? Or is it more just, hey, I want to be a software engineer, not a physical sciences type engineer? That is a good question. I, I mean, I think the same person that's qualified to work in a, in a factory that makes, you know, solar, solar cells as would be in a factory that makes hazardous waste chemicals. Like maybe there's slightly more of a draw to go, to go work in the one that makes a renewable energy technology than the other one. But I think it, again, I think it's a bigger thing that it's like, you just don't have as many people going to trade. You don't have, Nobody, nobody knows how to weld anymore. That's the thing I hear the most from manufacturers. It's like you used to have tons of graduates from high school going to a two-year trade school to learn how to be a master welder. Nobody's like graduating high school and being like, I'm going to go be a welder. Like that's just, it's just not happening as much as it used to. So I think it's a, it's a bigger skills shortage that isn't sector focused. I think it's more cultural. Like people want to do different things. Well, I mean, my understanding is that uh, in a few years, the, the artificial intelligence is just going to put everybody out of work anyway. So we, this really won't be a problem anymore, <laughs> right? right? We're, we're just going to watch Netflix all day and every show is going to be perfectly curated for you because they're going to know exactly what you want, right? It's going to be great. We certainly can't wait. And we'll all be watching it on our Apple Vision Pros or whatever, uh, whatever the next version of that is. 
Um, but I mean, I, I surely I, you, you did say technology is part of the solution to this. Surely one of the areas, uh, as I think we've talked about off 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 the podcast a little bit, you you've been seeing is is well, I mean, AI, the hype is everywhere. There's like a ton of stuff that's going on. I'm sure you're seeing impacts from that, right? And yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, Mike, we were talking about this the other day. I think uh, it's funny because if you ask somebody like, "What's going on with AI at your company now?" A lot of people think you're just referring to generative AI because that's so hot that that's just AI now for a lot of people. But there's really other AI domains that are relevant for the space we're talking about. Although generative is certainly one of them. Um, And we see a couple of trends, especially at manufacturing companies. So I think most big companies are building out some sort of corporate GPT, like my company GPT platform to solve like some easy stuff, like a person who like can't figure out how to properly fill out their PTO request form or like needs to get a copy of their last pay statement. The corporate GPT is good for that stuff. When you start talking about some of the more nuanced use cases within the industrial domain, like you're gonna you're gonna struggle to build that out with the open source tools from OpenAI or, or from Copilot or any of those. So we are starting to see some of those emerge that are focused very specifically on these industrial use cases. I think the one that we talked about the other day, Mike, and I've seen I've seen a few startups that do this, and I've seen several big industrial companies that are deploying it, you know, past the pilot phase is just getting information to frontline workers. So that's totally aligned with this problem, which is maybe you have a junior technician in a plant who doesn't have experience with the changeover process and there's a shutdown in the middle of it and they don't know what to do. Or maybe a a piece of equipment breaks down and they don't know how to fix it. The ability to just query one of these tools and say, I'm in this situation on the shop floor and this is the thing that's happening right now, what do I do? You know, for that tool to be able to go look through, you know, some of these user manuals for these machines are 5,000 pages long, right? Uh, Looking through their ERP or their asset management applications and getting the history that's associated with that machine, just being able to get that information to a person who didn't know how to solve a problem, that's that's a really high value use case. That's a real one, like that's a doable one. Um, So I think that that's a good area for innovation and it's also pegging this skills and labor issue too, by enabling people who maybe aren't the master technicians to be able to solve problems that only the people who retired last week could have solved. Yeah, though I think you were also saying there's been some, uh, the gen AI hype has also kind of been creating some some snafus for for maybe some of the more concrete AI applications yeah. too. Yeah, it's actually, it's filibustering some of our other deals and other AI categories. So like we're tracking a lot of deals across the startups we're working with and larger industrial companies they're trying to do business with. And a lot of big companies have put these like AI committees in place. And their job is really just to kind of ethically assess and audit any AI technology that's going into their, into their companies and make sure that it's not stealing proprietary information or doing anything nefarious. But a lot of them have now said any AI project has to go through this new process. And so it's like, I, we had a deal with a big mining company and it was an AI tool for monitoring the performance of electric motors. But the AI committee that was stood up to look at gen AI technologies blocked it. And we were like, those have nothing to do with each other. We wanted, we wanted to improve the reliability and reduce the energy consumption of the motors in your plants. It, it, it's literally, it's taking sensor data off the equipment. It's not like, it cannot touch anything like any of your corporate or sensitive data, but nope, that project died because because um, they put this AI committee in place. So we've seen different examples of that. So I think overall, a lot of the response to the generative AI technologies is actually inhibiting the progress and the deployment of other AI categories that were that were fine a year ago, right? But now they now they're part of this whole AI cluster. So we're. We're seeing that, and it's actually not—it's not good for us or for anybody, frankly. How do you think that that is going to evolve? Because for me, generative AI and these—you know—let's call them—you know—smaller AI. Because I think it's really when people say generative AI, they really mean large language models, right? Because like, there's plenty of generative AI that's already been around, but it just hasn't been called that. You know, look at materials informatics or any of these other these other sort of tools. I see 
large language models as being really good at sort of mitigating this human machine interface, right? You can get to the point of talking to machines in more natural language, right? Um, and I think that's especially important for applications like robotics, where we've already seen some of those interfaces uh, you know, prove challenging. Cobots famously sort of struggled and failed because it's just very difficult to actually interface with a robot. Um, and even if the robot is cheaper than hiring a person, right, to your sort of earlier point, you actually have to be able to like <laughs> work with that that robot. So I see this this interface as, as being something useful for um, for these large language models. Do you think though that they're going to kind of end up converging in applications with the sort of other types of AI, where maybe you have a something that's like predictive maintenance, right, or energy saving focused AI? And the way you interface with that is through a large language model or the way you use that is through a large language model. Are those things going to converge or are those really going to remain separate tracks? Yeah, no, I mean, ge generative AI is a complete horizontal, right? It's going to impact the way that we interface with applications and machines, even, even each other. I read a great story uh, yesterday about a Russian guy who had ChatGPT go on Tinder and match with 5,000 different women message them all and eventually propose to his wife and they're now married happily so it's like this isn't just a human to machine thing this is a human to human thing it's a human to machine thing it's a machine to machine thing so it's going to become pervasive but i still think it's 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 more of a fad than like a, a step change in the way the world works right here ago like a lot of people i talked to were like this is going to change everything the world is never going to be the same again and it was like oh well how many times have people said that about the latest technology fad, right? So it's like, yes, this will, this will get integrated into just about everything we use, but like, it's just going to be a small efficiency booster, right? It's like, you know, I can, I can, I can command Spotify in my car more accurately than I used to be able to like, or, or maybe, you know, may, there, there will be some niche use cases. Like, I guess the one, the one high, the, the one really high value one that we see across the board is like code generation, like you can really write a lot of code much more quickly and with fewer errors. That's a big one. Um, I like this frontline worker one. We're working with a few manufacturing companies that are using, um, you know, like some of these companies have like 5 million SKUs, right? Having having a generative tool write like the product descriptions for the website, sure, that's, that's a good one. Um, so yes, I do think it's going to eventually integrate into all these other fields and applications. I just, I don't think it's going to be this like, complete game changer for the whole world. It's also like, it's also not new. Like <laughs> ChatGPT was the first one that was good enough, yeah. right? To get everyone's attention and be really fun and cool. It's not like it just happened. Like these, these language models have been out there and people have been deploying them for different stuff for years. It's just like, that was finally the good one that just, you know, caught, caught the right part of the, the news algorithm. And now it's a big deal, right? So it's like, I don't know. It's not like anything, it's like everything's just changed overnight. So that I kind of don't understand that piece of it, but there's a lot of things I don't understand. Yeah, I mean, I do think there's there's a potential for it's it's not so much of a step change, but I think uh, or this sort of big disjunctive thing. But I think you know the the code generation and the human machine interface essentially, right? There is a possibility for this technology to enable people to deploy you know, machine learning and other sorts of digital technologies more rapidly and more more widely than they, they could before. And I think that that can be, you know, even though a lot of that is going to go to, you know, maybe you get that 5% energy improvement on your electric motors or whatever, you can you can get to that and, uh, you know, in three months instead of a year or something like that, or six months instead of nine months, even whatever, you know, that that can, you think you'll see some positive, you'll see a lot of positive effects from that, but it is a little bit more of, kind of accelerating some of these things that were that were already going on. Yeah, it's it's an it's an efficiency booster for sure for a lot of different stuff. So the other area that we that you touched on in in your response was around, you know, kind of sustainability, climate emissions, uh, all of that. And I think, you know, one of the ways that we've been looking at uh, sustainable manufacturing and in general, you know, here at Lux is that there's one level of it that's the um, you know, just the efficiency improvements, like you said, if you can, if you can reduce the energy usage, like that's great. And it's, it's very uncontroversial and everybody, everybody uh, loves that. It's very easy to show an ROI on. Um, but the other aspect of it is switching to more 
you know, kind of transformational processes. And ultimately, like, if you think about a steel making facility, right, you can, there's a lot of things you can do to run it more efficiently and cut down your emissions that way. But then ultimately, if you're, especially if you're really going to try to go towards net zero, you're going to need to replace your, you know, your blast furnace, your electric arc furnace with a, you know, some kind of, you know, direct reduction, hydrogen, um, or, uh, you know, electrochemical sort of sort of process, uh, something very different instead. As far as what you're seeing, I'm, I'm sure from what you've described a lot in the efficiency category, are there ways that people are looking at technologies to kind of help enable the deployment of those more transformational approaches also? It's not a space I, I know a ton about. Um, like we, we focus more on the other pieces of it, like how do you monitor the equipment and then, you know, f- figure out if it's consuming more energy than it needs to, right? Because just because it's it's not properly lubricated or somebody installed it the wrong way. Um, so that that's probably where we spend more of our times. Um, you know, obviously transitioning to greener energy sources for the, the equipment itself is, is useful. But yeah, in terms of like the steel production process, I, I don't know the difference between a, a blast furnace or whatever the... more environmentally (laughs) friendly thing might be um you know if i if i i I heard i asked i I ask a lot of these companies like what what are the pillars of your sustainability program and there's kind of a few common themes across all manufacturing companies um and i think it probably boils down to just three things that you can really have an impact on and this is just kind of taking a bunch of things and putting together one is what we're talking about which is like your asset footprint like how much energy are we burning in the plants? How much carbon are we emitting because of it? How much fuel are our trucks burning? Like the things you control and how much energy they consume and what they emit. That's one piece of it. The other is how sustainable are our products, right? Like how 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 bad are they for the environment? How much packaging is there? How recyclable are they? Can we make them circular? Like th- those kinds of things. And then the third one, and this is, this is like the, if somebody could come up with a silver bullet for this one, it'd be great. It's like, how do we track our entire supply base and customer base and all of their emissions and everything that they do? It's the whole scope three emissions thing. That That's probably the specific tech category I get asked most about for manufacturing companies is like, do you have a startup that can solve scope three emissions? And the answer is, of course not. <laughs> like, no, like, I can tell you a better looking spreadsheet so that other people can lie about their information and make it look pretty in your spreadsheet. But it's like, to really get a handle on that is hard. And those are those are kind of the three categories where we see tech emerging. And obviously you can break you could break it down a million different ways. I just think like that's a clean way of talking about like what is sustainability for a manufacturing company. On that point, you know, we've seen companies like Apple in their sustainability efforts. They've had to basically just send auditors to every single one of their suppliers, right? You know, there's not a ton of substitutes right now for that kind of manpower, right? And I'm sure there's still plenty of stuff that they're missing. Is there any long-term solution to, like, just put on record, I'm a blockchain hater, so don't say blockchain, but is there any long-term solution to, you know, some of this getting to a better place with, with verifying some of this information, whether it's like satellite imaging for certain types of emissions or or anything else, or is it just going to be, you know, a lot of person power to actually get this any kind of reasonable information out there yeah i don't know blockchain would be a great way to take all of this misinformation and put it in a database that you could then never change permanently it was all fake permanently lock down that misinformation yeah it would be a really good way to keep the bad data bad forever uh but yeah i don't think it solves any real problems um i i mean like i i think like there's a couple things i think of when i try to think about how you solve for that so we did a project a couple of years ago. One of the big U.S. auto OEMs has a whole industry 4.0 for our tier one, two, three suppliers program, which is like, how do you help them digitize, right? So that they can provide a better quality of service to us so that like we can see when product is ready, uh, how is quality, right? What's what are What are the scrap rates and stuff like that? So they were trying to help their entire supply chain digitize in their factories. It was, it was selfish, right? It was for them to improve their own profitability and be more predictable and resilient. But like they actually did invest a lot of money in trying to help their supply base at least get real-time visibility to the shop floor. Um, 
I haven't talked to that team in like three years, so I don't know where that went, but that was kind of like a baby version of like, how do we actually know what's going on across our supply base? Yeah. I, I don't know how you do it until, um, I mean, maybe somebody with enough command of the entire value chain, like an auto OEM or like a Boeing or somebody who can really kind of push their suppliers around. Right. Cause it's like, maybe they own the entire supply chain. Right. Uh, they might have a shot at doing it. Yeah. App, maybe an Apple could do it, but I don't, I don't know how you do it. I, I don't I think you have to have something like that. Somebody with enough command over the supply base who can mandate it. Um, but it's tough. Yeah. There's no, there's no silver bullet for that. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately like it is going to come down to suppliers demanding it. And we're starting to see that in, you know, in sectors like chemicals that more, um, at least of the major suppliers are starting to include, I think, reasonably good quality reporting on the embodied carbon in the, you know, chemicals, materials are supplying. BASF has a big program on this, for instance. So I think that sort of thing will will gradually become more more standard, but it, it really depends on, you know, like you were saying in that, that digital example, just with the suppliers starting to, to, to get on board with it and, and do it consistently. There's not like a you know, if the suppliers aren't doing a good job of tracking their emissions, there's not like a software or a, or a blockchain or any kind of solution that's going to solve it for, for you. There's, I, I, I'm drawing a blank on what this company is called, but um, there's a few different tech companies that try to just, they, they survey all the, all the companies in the world and try and get their scope three emissions, try, try and get different kinds of production data from them and get them in a database. And then they try to make like, you know, manufacturers further down in the supply chain subscribe to their database so they can start to make claims around like, you know, we're not using any forced labor or yes, we're, we're sourcing from companies that use this kind of green energy profile. And I, I remember we did a review of this about a year ago. And at that point, the company that was most expensive that was selling the best version of that database could maybe at best get you like 40% of your supply chain. Like, and that was the best game in town. And like, that was the number they said, which means it was definitely a lie. So it was definitely even worse than that. So like, it's just a hard problem to solve. It's definitely something that we're hearing a lot about and keeping an eye on. So we'll, uh, we'll uh, hopefully see some more progress on it, but uh, yeah, it's been, been great having, having you on. I, I think it's uh, a really interesting conversation, some, some, some great insights and uh, we'll, uh, we'll have to stay in touch. And uh, maybe when somebody comes up with that magic bullet, have you back on to tell us about it. You bet. It was, it's a pleasure as always, Mike, Anthony, good to, good to reconnect with you guys. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research, the leading sustainable innovation research and advisory firm. You can follow this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more, check out www.luxresearchinc.com slash blog for all of the latest news, opinions, and articles.